We'd like to give a special thanks to Astro Agency, the executive producers of Space and 60. They provide strategic marketing support exclusively for the space sector. Strategic because their team have all the vast experience working within space companies or setting them up. So they specialize in getting technical messaging and brand positioning just right. As well as having the industry connections to organize podcasts just like this one and their Space Bar webinars, which we'd highly recommend for new space networking. Check Astro Agency out on social media. They're in all the usual places. Hello, welcome to Space in 60, a brand new podcast where we look at all things space. We look at the new space revolution. We look at old space. Basically, we just like staring into space. I'm Dallas Campbell from London, space enthusiast. But I think my podcast superhero skill is that I don't actually work in the space industry. So I, I, I have license to ask the stupid questions on your behalf. That's what I'm looking forward to the most. I'm Clint Grauman, a CEO of Terrametric and absolute space enthusiast. One of the things that's really cool about this podcast is that we get a chance to sit around with friends and talk about all things space that we've missed on the road for the last year. You know, the time sitting around having a beer, talking about what's happening in the industry and all the crazy stories that we've had traveling around in the space industry all over. And I'm Chad Baker. I'm, again, just passionate about space, vice president at Terrametric and like Clint mentioned, just being kind of locked down in your house and not being able to get out. So it's going to be fun to share this adventure and kind of talking about new space and the new technologies coming out and, you know, how can we grow this together and, and help out the the environment of space? I think this lockdown's driven us all crazy, you know. It has. But we just don't get out enough. I think that's basically our introduction, isn't it? A bunch of strays who don't get out enough. Anyway, welcome to the show. We have one person missing who's doing, in inverted commas, family things, <laughs> which isn't rude. He's having children. We're missing Thruster. Thruster. But he'll be back on a, on a future podcast. This is our podcast number one. Our first guest, Marba Jar, we're going to be talking to about the problems of space junk. Space junk. Space junk. Near space. Low, low Earth. Or what do we, what do we, the, the, the bit just above the Earth, where everything is, that area. What do we call that? Near Earth, low Earth orbit. I think the problem with that is we tend to think space is really big, don't we? But actually, that bit just above the atmosphere where all the satellites are that we depend on, that life on Earth depends on, really, it's so useful. It's getting quite crowded. Yeah. And, you know, I think Morba is just an amazing guest for us to have on for our first show. He's he's looking out for Earth. He's incredibly knowledgeable in this domain. And, and there are just on a lot of people that are exploring this part of protecting the space environment. And, you know, as we think about protecting the earth and protecting the, the low earth orbit around us that we all have to navigate and be a part of, you know, his work has just been unbelievably amazing. And he's got such a diverse background in the space industry and, and the military. And I'm just really excited to hear him today. And Chad, did you know he used to guard nuclear missiles at top secret base? I think that's possibly my favorite story and had a run in with a cow. <laughs> I, I think it'll remind us a little bit. You remember that old movie, Top Secret, with Val Kilmer? Yes. And the cow? Maybe it's the same cow. We'll ask him about the cow. You know, we talk about the new space revolution. I don't know if that's the right phrase. But are we going too quickly for our own good? Are we sort of run, running before we've established the rules, as it were? 
I don't know. I think, you know, like just like with the industrial revolution and any time that we have such an advance in technology, we've got an incredible advance in technology right now, along with an advance in capital infusion into the markets. And so one of the, the really cool things about new space, I think, is the incredible diversity of people that are coming into the new space world. And this injection of capital is really increasing those capabilities of people from all diverse parts of and backgrounds to be able to get into this environment. But it's also contributing to an environment where we have a tremendous amount of space objects and we have a tremendous amount of spacecraft that are all up there doing good works. But space is starting to begin to get a little crowded, you know, and, and we're getting to the point where we're not even numbering as precisely the number of objects and space junk in space. We're starting to think about it in terms of volume instead of numbers. And so we've got to start thinking about how we, we manage this. And Mariba is a great example of people looking out for the future of space. And with more and more launch vehicles coming up daily, the ability to launch something and get it into orbit, the cost keeps driving down. What can we do to, to get something to clean it up or, or kind of manage that piece as well. In my imagination, a bit like other things in the world, I just imagine everyone knows what they're doing. I kind of imagine that, you know, oh, people have sort, will sort that out. That's fine. Oh, everyone knows that you, anyone, you can't just bung a satellite up in space. But actually, it's much more complicated than that. It is a bit Wild West up there. There are no established rules of engagement. People can kind of do what they want, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause problems. I know what I'm doing. It just, I don't know what Clint's doing. So it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see what you're doing. I can't see what you're doing, Chad. What are you doing? <laughs> That's for another podcast. <laughs> Should we listen to Marbajar? He's really interesting. I'm happy he's our first guest. Absolutely. There he is. Marbajar, you do everything. I was going through your various jobs you've done over the years. You've had quite a career. Hey, man, I started by guarding nuclear missiles in Montana, right? Can we just do the whole podcast about that? Because all the interesting <laughs> things you do, that for me was the one I really wanted to talk about. The fact that you guarded nuclear missiles yeah, in Montana. Uh, yeah, I have stories. T t okay, oh, probably, are they top secret stories? Well, some of them are, so I won't talk about those, but others okay. are quite embarrassing, and I think you'd like those. Those are the ones we're looking for. Let's Absolutely. dive in. <laughs> Well, listen, first of all, thank you so much for joining us, particularly because this is our very, very first podcast. And so you are guest number one. And obviously, as guest number one, our most important guest we've ever had. But <laughs> 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 so, so there you go. But I actually, I actually think, you know, given what you did, given the world you're in, I mean, you're, you're, I've heard you've been described as a space environmentalist. I actually think you probably will be the most important guest that we've ever had as a space environmentalist because... That's what we want to talk about. This this new world that we're creating for ourselves in space. How are we going to keep it safe and how are we going to keep it under control? That's what we're going to talk about today. So first of all, I want to know, this is my, you know, my sort of question. We're sending a lot of things up into space at the moment, particularly in low Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit is not a finite space. I think a lot of people kind of assume that space is massive, so it doesn't matter how much stuff we, we chuck up into space. But I want you to, can you just sort of set out the scale of the problem as you see it? Yeah. So look, I think that there's some great analogies to carrying capacity in terms of ecological sustainability. And just like there's a finite carrying capacity to land, you know, above which pandemics, these sorts of things start happening, which we're experiencing now, right? Even highway carrying capacity and that sort of stuff. So near Earth space, is kind of like this mostly invisible ecosystem 
mostly comprised of stuff that we've put up there. And just like there are kind of lanes in the oceans where you can see, you know, debris and things moving around, there are these kind of currents in near-Earth space where the rubbish that, that we've created is also moving around. And so there's a finite capacity for any orbital highway to carry traffic safely before things start happening, like collisions and things. Go are ahead. The, are these like predetermined, a bit like kind of flight paths for aeroplanes? I mean, obviously flight paths, okay, you've, all these planes are flying in particular lanes, as you say, like lanes on a road. Is that what happens in space? Is there an organization that says, okay, this, these are the sort of lanes where things will be? I mean, obviously things like altitudes, but I mean, the Earth's pretty damn big. So the thing is, is that any given highway tends to rotate and precess just like a spinning top. And so eventually it covers the whole, you know, covers all areas of the globe. So they're not, the highways aren't necessarily fixed in space with respect to Earth, except for this geosynchronous kind of highway. That one's pretty fixed, which is about 36,000 kilometers of altitude. But everything else kind of precesses. And most of these highways are based on the purpose of what we launch. Like if we want things to provide Earth observation and these sorts of things, there's a region called Sun Synchronous, which basically gives kind of very good lighting conditions to observe parts of the Earth on a daily basis. It's more of highways in this orbital space, which kind of moves around versus the typical, these are, you know, specific lanes. Yeah. Okay. And it's worth remembering, so 1957, we had one object in near-Earth space, is that what we call low-Earth orbit. Now we're up to, it's something ridiculous, it's something like 26,000, is, or is that a number I, or did I get that right? No, no, that, that's brilliant, Dallas. So yeah, about 26,000 things that we track, ranging in size from, you know, the whole cell phone thing all the way to the space station, of which roughly about 3,500 are things that serve a purpose, they're working, they're delivering some service, and everything else is, is rubbish. So more about, there, there can't be a ton of people that, that study what you study and spend their life studying junk and things in space and studying the 30,000 objects that are up there. How in the world do you get into something like that? What's your background? Yeah, so the thing that really got me interested in this was when I was an enlisted Air Force security policeman right after high school, I got stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. Didn't know where the place was until they told me I had to go there. And I actually grew up in Caracas, Venezuela, a place with lots of lights, you know, big city lights, that sort of thing. So on a good evening, you could see the moon sort of thing. You couldn't see a whole lot of stars. So I went to Montana. Well, they call it big sky country. It's like nothing but sky country. And it gets really dark. Like with my naked eye, it was the first time that I could really see the Milky Way and all this other stuff. And I just started noticing these dots of light going over the missile silos. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not a plane. It's not a meteor. Like, what is this thing? And it turned out, oh, wow, it's stuff that humans have put in a space orbiting the earth. It was such a surreal moment for me. It's like, Oh my God, I can't believe that I can, with my naked eye, I'm seeing something that humans put in orbiting the Earth. And that's the moment I said, I just need to know more about that. So were you actually in the silo looking up? <laughs> so actually, this is a great question, right? So all of these silos are, are underground, but they're all part of what's, what are called launch facilities. And as a security policeman, it was my job to like guard these things. So in four days, 
Sometimes I'd have to drive a thousand miles on dirt roads in Montana to address different security alarms at each one of these silos. Mounds from Air Force Base uh, at the time had about, I want to say between 200 and 250 nuclear missiles, Minuteman 2, Minuteman 3 systems. And uh, yeah, so it was my job to just, anytime there was an alarm that went off, which could have been like the wind tripped something up or maybe a ground squirrel set it off, right? But could be uh, an enemy trying to steal a, a nuclear warhead. I had to go out there. Did, did that happen anytime? Did any enemies try and... I'm fascinated by this whole story now. <laughs> did like people try and sneak into like kind of Area 51? Did people kind of try and sneak so, in? So, so the answer is... The answer is there, are, there were suspicious activities around these facilities during my four years at Malmstrom Air Force Base where people in some pickup trucks that, that were noticed close to the silos when alarms went off, that sort of stuff, especially during Desert Storm. Like there was a lot of weird activity during Desert Storm. But I think the, the greatest threat to one of these facilities, if you give me the latitude to tell it, it's, a, it's, it's one of my most embarrassing stories that people haven't heard, if you want me to tell it. We want it. Oh, yes. Embarrassing story is good. Okay. Here we go. Montana, very dark night. As part of our training, we had supposedly a terrorist would take over the site and how would people respond to it. So, so we were always in this mode of training and addressing these sorts of things. And so on one of these dark nights, my supervisor says, okay, you and this other person are going to be part of this reconnaissance team. Supposedly, these terrorists took over this lunch control facility so you go in front of everybody else and you basically give us all the information. How many people can you spot all this other stuff? So I said, okay, sounds good. This is middle of the night, no moon, very dark. And so I'm going down this gravel road, just barely having it kind of in drive so that I don't like no lights on or any of this stuff. And I make it behind this hill where I tell the person I'm with, yeah, go to the top of the hill, transmit on this frequency, tell me what you see. But in the distance over to like my left, there was a light post way, way far away. And I could tell that something had gotten between the light post and myself because out of my side view mirror, I could see that the light was interrupted. And this was during desert storm, right? So I'm like, now my heart's starting to race. I'm like, this is not part of the exercise. Somebody is, is mucking around trying to do something to us here. So I get out of my vehicle and I have my fully charged, kind of, you know, like, like all my gear. I have my M16 with me. And it's so dark that I can't see anything, but I could make out in the distance a shadow that just moved and st stood still. Now my heart's really racing. Mind you, I, at this point, I'm 18 or 19 years old. I weigh like 190 pounds with like 6% body fat. Like I was ripped, man. And I'm like, the next time this dude moves, I am going to just butt him with my rifle and stuff and, and just knock him to the ground, right? So I'm like observing. I'm ready. I'm ready. The next time this guy moves, I like just bum rush, ah, you know, and I just <laughs> hit this guy with everything I have and it knocked me flat on my back. This guy didn't move because this guy was actually a cow. <laughs> I ran into a cow. It scared me so bad. A terrorist I'm like, cow. I'm like, this dude is huge. <laughs> I ran into a cow in the middle of the darkness, man. So. That was my most heroic moment at Malmstrom Air Force Base. Was that the was that the end of your career guarding nuclear missiles? It was not because I didn't tell anybody. Okay. <laughs> so from being a guard guarding nukes 
off you go and you then go and do a PhD and become a, a space scientist, a, an astro, astro... I'm not an astrophysicist. What should I call you? An, an um, astrodynamicist. An astrodynamicist, exactly. And was it just from looking up at the night sky and being so sort of fascinated by what you saw? Was that your, your sort of seminal moment? It was my seminal moment. And the thing is, the career that I wanted to have in the Air Force wasn't going to happen for me. I wanted to be an officer, maybe like, you know, fly planes or whatever. It's like, like Richard Gere. Yeah, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> That's exactly, what I always you know? wanted to be. It was <laughs> right? a toss-up between Richard Gere and Top Gun Man. Especially, right? Exactly. So I remember those days of the Richard Gere thing. And, you know, I was driven to be an officer, and, and that didn't happen f for me. It wasn't going to happen. And so I got out of the military and decided to, yeah, study aerospace engineering. Look, it was it was rough. It was rough because I was older. You know, I started undergrad at 23 I went back to Venezuela, actually, for two years to do some soul searching because my life was just in shambles, you know, for a variety of reasons, man. I needed to figure myself out, figure out what to do. But yeah, I, after two years of soul searching, I came back to the States to study aerospace engineering at 23, never took calculus or any of this stuff. And my academic advisors, you know, he advised me to not study aerospace engineering. He's like, look, you're just a security guard. Like, why don't you just do something else, law enforcement or something like that? Like, go tackle some cows. Engineering, yeah, yeah, it's not <laughs> yeah. for you. Go tackle some cows. Yeah, tackle some cows, right. That's really it. So you didn't have any... So, I, well, I don't... I mean, 23 doesn't sound that old, actually. That sounds... Well, Dude, this is like Jedi training, right? It's like Yoda yeah. says, too old to begin <laughs> the training at 23. Yeah. So for that two years while you were gone and doing the soul searching, was it just kind of the, the thought of looking up at the the stars and seeing the satellites go over that just kind of kept coming back to you? When I got out of the military, one of the interesting things that kind of echoes in my mind as a haunting thing is somebody in the military said, don't let anybody's opinion become your reality. And it didn't necessarily mean much to me at the time, but you know, my commander wanted me to reenlist and I said, no. And he said to me, Major Bryant, he said, if you leave the military, Mark my words, you will end up being homeless, living under a bridge in a cardboard box. Like, that's what he said. Those were his, like, last words. When I got out of the military, man, I went to Daytona Beach to study aerospace engineering at Embry-Riddle there. And I was working two jobs, had lots of debt, could barely make ends meet. And it was becoming my reality. It got to the point where, man, I didn't even have enough money to get food and stuff like that. I ate out, out of a dumpster for several months. It was bad news. I hit what I would call rock bottom. And, you know, sometimes when you hit rock bottom, you go back to your mom. It was very embarrassing because my stepfather saw me as a complete failure and all this other stuff. I mean, in the Air Force, I made it to becoming Airman of the Year for Strategic Air Command. Like, I made it to that pinnacle. And then the next thing, you know, I'm eating out of a dumpster kind of thing, right? So I kind of went home, tuck tail kind of thing. And, uh, my mother was always a beacon for me and she let me back in kind of stuff. I started getting into meditation, man, and just Eastern philosophy and that sort of thing. And I realized that up until then, my life had always been about what other people thought I should do, not what I think I should do. And so that's when I started turning things around. That's really interesting. Actually, that, that sort of philosophy, and I've, I, I've sort of read about you and I've, and I've heard you speak before, I see it creeping into your work. When you talk about being a space environmentalist, you, you talk about things like traditional environmental knowledge of yes. different people around the world. Indigenous folks, yeah. Indigenous folks, and sort of applying that 
to those sorts of images doesn't really conjure up in this particular industry. We don't, we don't imagine those sorts of philosophies, those sorts of ideas. How do you sort of balance those two things? Yeah, so it's, it's very challenging for me. And I guess I've kind of come out of my shell when I first got into engineering. I didn't look like an engineer. I didn't walk like an engineer, that sort of stuff. And I felt that I had to accommodate the perceptions of others if I wanted to just get through this sort of thing. I just had this kind of imposter syndrome thing that I still, to some extent, but it's like once I was at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab doing basically navigating satellites to Mars and rovers and stuff like that, I started somewhat believing in myself and coming out of the shell. And my wife, Cassandra, she definitely helped kind of bring me out of the shell. Like, look, people will respect you for the work that you do. It doesn't matter, you know, how you dress, all this other stuff, like just be yourself. And so that helped me tremendously, man. No, no one at JPL has imposter syndrome. I don't believe anyone at JPL has imposter syndrome. <laughs> you, can't have, you can't be at JPL and have imposter syndrome because you're like top of the pile. Right, right, right. <laughs> like that's, right. As, that's as good as it gets. But did, Some, when, you, when, when you first went there, were you, I mean, because you did, you did, you had dreadlocks and, you know, you, I guess you look different to the, the standard idea of what a aerodynamicist absolutely. looks like. Well, yeah, and I'll put it this way. I remember one meeting that I went to Northrop Grumman. I'm just going to say it. It was the beginning of a planned mission to the moon and stuff. And when I was introduced as this is the lead navigator for the mission, there are people in the room that saw me that got up out of their chairs and left. You're kidding. No. I think that's that's part of the, you know, the allure of the new space revolution more about, you know, and I think this type of environment has really opened up the doors to really talented people with incredible backgrounds. And has this new space movement really made a, a difference for you and your career and, and, and how things have evolved? I think I'm all about nurturing it, helping it. I think for me, the new space movement isn't so helpful for me, but other people, the younger generation to come. And the thing that really excites me, man, is the notion of transdisciplinarity, meaning moving across disciplinary boundaries to solve wicked problems. And I see more and more students in my classrooms that are like, oh, I don't want to just be an aerospace engineer. I want to I want to get a degree in engineering, government, policy, law. Like they want to do all these things, right? Because they realize that the fusion of these things is really what it's going to, you know, it, what, it, what it takes to solve some of these problems. Absolutely. Have you ever wondered how to get your company's latest news in front of a global space sector audience? Then get in touch with Room Space Journal. With a large digital and print audience focusing on space, astronautics, science, and the latest news and developments from the sector, Room Space Journal is a direct route to increasing brand awareness in space. For the latest space news and to download a media pack, visit the website at room.eu.com. I want to talk a little bit about what you do now, because you're so involved in this problem of space junk, this idea that there is a lot of stuff up there in orbit. And as we put more and more stuff up, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. How bad is it? We, we mentioned at the beginning with 26,000 objects up there. How likely are things to sort of hit each other? I mean, because 26,000 to the untrained eye it doesn't seem that many when you consider how big space is but i did but, but but can you just 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 explain the problem in a little more detail yeah so absolutely so if i can just say this that we have plastics in the ocean and that sort of thing right yeah and everybody's kind of heard about that and one of the sad things is that'll never be completely clean 
So, so near Earth space will never be pristine again. We have to learn how to live within our own bathwater sort of thing, our own filth. And most of the stuff that we put up in space never comes back. So things in low Earth orbit, eventually, because of atmospheric kind of friction effects, these things will return. Like the Starlinks, you know, if, if a Starlink is like dead on arrival, it'll take it several years to kind of this uh, is the SpaceX. This is the SpaceX right. sort of constellation that, that, exactly. that they put up. Yeah, so things like around you know a couple hundred kilometers altitude up to like four four hundred five hundred kilometers, but if you go higher than that, you know a thousand kilometers, twelve hundred kilometers. Now you're talking about decades to centuries, and then above that, it's like perpetuity. The things up there, and presumably once something's up there as well, big things become smaller things if they break up or if they get hit. So suddenly there's even more. Bits and pieces. I mean, what's when we talk about these twenty six thousand things? That's not just satellites, is it? That's that's bits of debris and that that's right. So so it's things that uh, shards of things, broken solar panels, multi layer insulation, astronaut gloves, wrenches. You know all this stuff. Spatula. I saw. I thought. I think there's a spatula up there. I, thought, I can't it's remember crazy. who it was. There was. There was one astronaut. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Michael Foley or somebody maybe working on the Hubble, and they had a spatula, like a kitchen spatula. I don't know why they had a spatula, and they dropped it. Well, you, you know, there's some questions that I just don't ask. Who knows what they're doing up there, man? You know my favorite bit of space junk, just really quickly? It's called SuitSat. Do you know about SuitSat? No, tell me. The Russians, what they did was they chucked out an Orland spacesuit, like a complete spacesuit that had passed its sell-by date, and they put like a transmitter on the, in the helmet, and they just threw it out. So you had this body orbiting around <laughs> no, nobody was in the spacesuit i should point out but but it had a little kind of transmitter on like like kind of sputnik and you could sort of um kind of beam down messages i think it was a kind of art project but i think i don't know if it's still up there but i quite like the idea of this sort of phantom astronaut floating around the earth right right like the tesla yeah exactly well, well that's another yeah we should get we should well blimey we could get into that <laughs> but it's um, essentially all this stuff up there is going to cause problems if, if it collides because it's traveling at whatever it is, 17,000 miles an hour. It's like things in low Earth orbit, roughly about seven and a half kilometers per second. So about seven and a half times the speed of a bullet sort of thing. But relative velocity. So whenever th something is on one of these missed distances, close, close encounters, the relative speed is about 15 kilometers per second. And... Even something very small, as you know, you know, bullets are small, but can cause a lot of damage. So a lot of kinetic energy, and that's what it's about. So at those speeds, things that are very small can do a lot of damage. And as you said, large things that tend to get hit by something tend to become many, many, many smaller things. And so in this kind of realm of most things aren't coming back, it's almost like, okay, we're driving on this highway, you know, things fall apart, things die. But the things that are dead keep on moving at these speeds and we just keep on putting more and more stuff on that highway. I think the problem is, to a lot of people, this just seems rather kind of esoteric and it was all very far away and it doesn't really bother me. But the fact is that life on Earth is so dependent now on what we put up in space in terms of the way the day-to-day -day things that we do depends on space stuff that it is becoming a real problem, isn't it? It's not just a kind of a problem that only a few people have to worry about. I mean, things like, uh, you know, Starlink, for example, this, this constellation is designed, you know, to give people better internet access. So, I mean, these are people trying to do good stuff, but it also means, as you say, more and more stuff in orbit, more and more stuff that could collide with other stuff. 
I mean, when I get in my car and I drive out, there are rules of the road. I know pretty much I'm not going to crash in. I mean, obviously accidents happen, but we have established rules that are the same all, all around the world. Do we not have that for space? So we don't. And so that's the problem, right? Is that we have this environment, it's this finite resource. Like I said, we have specific orbital lanes that we put stuff in and we don't have these rules of the road. We don't have these norms of behavior that we agree upon. So it's not just the possibility of dead things colliding with dead things, but it's also that there are a growing number of participants that are making decisions in the absence of knowing how others make decisions. And so that's the thing that's like, okay, if I'm driving next, you know, and I see some other car, because we don't have agreed upon like rules of how to drive, I have no idea how, you know, I have to be very defensive, right? Because I have no idea how this other person is going to behave. I always imagine when they when they came up with those rules, you know, you could imagine when they invented cars and they've invented this thing called a road. And you can imagine the conversation, which would be like, well, how are we going to stop two cars sort of crashing into each other? And then the other person says, well, why don't we have one car driving on that side of the road and then the other car driving on that side of the road? And they'll go, oh, that's a good idea. But how do, how do we stop them sort of crossing over by mistake? Oh, I know, we'll just paint a line down the road. You'd think that would be mad, wouldn't you? You'd think, well, that's a stupid idea, but it kind of works. Just, you know, human humans agreeing on things kind of works. Yeah, absolutely. So I think really what needs to happen is this. I kind of view it in this way. The knowledge about stuff in space is not common across all the participants in the domain. So there's uneven knowledge about how to operate and all this other stuff. And so capacity building, as the UN calls it, this idea of basically trying to share that knowledge to even out that knowledge across space-faring nations, that's critical because people tend to practice based on what they know. And if the knowledge is uneven, the practice is uneven, and it's the uneven practice that leads to all these hazards. And why do we have such an uneven practice? Why don't we just kind of all decide as a planet, okay, we're sending shitloads of stuff into space, we need to manage it better. Why is that so difficult? <laughs> so here's the problem, Dallas, is that, I don't know, countries like the US have been doing this for a very long time. And so when the US says, these are the norms that we should all adhere to, other countries like, who are you to just say that sort of thing? Like, like the U.S. does it based on all these decades of experience. If, if I'm a country like Zimbabwe, a satellite fleet of one, I haven't done this sort of stuff before. And all of a sudden you're saying, oh, the only way that I should participate is if I can control my satellite to within two meters. I don't even have that capability. I don't even know how to do that. Like, so, so the trying to standardize the practice in the absence of evening out the knowledge, that's just not going to work. A, there's a couple of questions I have more about on that. I mean, how extreme are we talking about up there? Is it on a scale from Wild West to, you know, inter-country agreements? Like, where are we? Wild West, close to a treaty? How extreme is it? It's more towards the Wild West part. And the thing is, even cultural differences, man, we don't really account for those sorts of things. Like, there's some constellation that I won't name here that anytime China launches a satellite into their orbital planes, they're like, you know what? This is we really weird to us because we chose these orbital planes not because it get you know it's necessarily advantageous we just chose something and it would be it seems like very weird that somebody would launch into the same highway that we're using and with no explanation and if 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 we're going to if we're on a collision course with them 
we notify them and we never hear back until maybe after the fact. So it's not good, man. It's, it's, it's bad news. So there's a cultural aspect to this, but I mean, what about the, the business culture aspect? How do you think that venture capital coming into this market and injecting money into lots of satellites in low earth orbit and moving on up from there? Like, how has that affected the environment? Not just from more satellites, but like the business culture around this. Some people want to do the right thing, whatever that is, but many are like, look, our line of sight exit strategy is like five years. So if you're talking to me about a problem that goes beyond that, I don't think that we really care. I've gotten a lot of that. It's like, oh, you know, if you're talking to me about something I have to worry about in 10 years, I don't care about that problem. It's like, it's just very myopic, man. And it, it, it angers me. We need people to think about this in the same way that we now think about things like the oceans and plastic in the oceans. I yeah. mean, we've, we've had a paradigm shift in the way that I think we, we think about the planet in the last of 10 years. Is it just because people aren't really as invested because we don't see it because it's so far away? It's so kind of out of out of sight. And it seems this is what governments do. And this is what people like Elon Musk do. I'm not going to worry about it. If we had, yeah, if David absolutely. Attenborough came in, for example, and made a documentary about space junk, would people care about it more? Of course, because his voice is like, you know, so charming, right? It's like, uh, look, I would love to do one. This is your role, Marba. You're going to be the Attenborough of space. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I look, I would I would love to do this sort of thing. And to be honest with you, the type of documentary that I want to do is very different than anything that's been done in this so far, because I actually want to show people that there is an interconnectedness between space and oceans, atmosphere, climate, land. So these things are all interconnected somehow. And even though people, they look up at the skies like, oh, well, you know, that's kind of far away. If for no other reason, all these services and capabilities that are becoming more space-based, position, navigation, timing, climate change monitoring, disaster relief, internet, all these things, there's no guarantee that these services are going to be uninterrupted if one of these things kind of, you know, smacks into this stuff at any given point in time. I mean, when do you think, you know, given that we're on this sort of exponential curve of stuff we're throwing into space, are we going to get to a point in the near future when you think something bad will happen? Is it just a matter of time before something gets hit and, you know, that's the lights turning off or the banking system collapses or something like that? I see it like the pandemic and that we need to flatten the curve on the growth of debris. And the main reason, so there's two things. The main reason we have not flattened the curve on the growth of debris is because, much like with the pandemic on Earth, people aren't listening to the science and they're not complying with what people have said. We already have a bunch of guidelines which are not legally binding in and of themselves, but there are a series of guidelines that have come out of the United Nations that says, hey, here's this checklist. If you do these things, it will basically minimize the growth of debris. And if people actually implemented that, you'd actually see a flattening of the curve. The other thing too is that we have super spreader events in space, much like with a pandemic. And these are the large derelict rocket bodies that are just ticking time bombs that were launched decades ago. It's not a matter of if it's when these things explode or get hit, those things should get removed. But the thing is they belong to three countries. Those rocket bodies belong to the United States, Russia, and China. And presumably China, I mean, didn't China, didn't they blow up a satellite with a missile? They did back I mean, in 2007. Like that's probably not going to help the situation. No, it doesn't help. Yeah. One of 
what's the balance, Morba? I mean, we've got countries that are that are working to improve their their space presence. We've got those that have been there for a long time, like the U.S. We've also got venture capital and and investors moving into space. And there's this aspect that we learned so much through space exploration and everything improves here on earth from what we learn from going to space. But at the same time, we've got this challenge of the more we want to venture into space and the more we want to learn, the more objects that are there, the more responsibility we have to take care of that. So what's your opinion on what the the balance is? How do we find that? So one of the things that I want to say is this, I don't think that the number of objects is the problem. I think the absence of managing it holistically is the problem, right? So to me, it's like we could put another tens of thousands of satellites up in orbit, but the fact that we don't manage that holistically is is kind of an issue. And the other thing too, man, is people pretty much do things because they can legally. And when you tell people, hey, listen, why don't you curtail that a little bit and let's have an inclusive dialogue. Let's see how other people feel about their night sky changing or any of these things. Let's fall back to this kind of intergenerational contract of being stewards and custodians versus owners of stuff, that's the shift that needs to happen, you know, which which I think that's where the balance comes into play. Back to your, you know, you talked about the way that indigenous cultures looked at the environment in a holistic way. It's applying some of that know-how and some of that philosophy, isn't it? Yeah, so let me tell you about that, right? I mean, I I left JPL in 2006, moved with my family to Maui. That was a family choice because we just wanted to be out on the islands. And I saw a huge disparity between Native Hawaiians and the rest of us kind of stuff and ecological detriment, man. Like Maui itself, the plastics, I've never seen so many plastic bottles in my life. The hotel industry has just been horrible to the environment and landfills, crazy, right? And so that planted a seed into my mind of ecological sustainability is something that we need to care about and do more of. A couple of years later, I went to Alaska and I had kind of a, an inner shift moment, took my son Denali to see where his name came from kind of thing. It means great one in, in, in the language of the folks that are native Anthabascans. I saw very similar kind of disparities. And so here, here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get very metaphysical on you. Good. And just say that. We need that. Chad needs that. I'm looking <laughs> Chad at him. Needs he that. looks like he needs a bit of metaphysical. <laughs> good, good metaphysics. I woke up one of my mornings there in Anchorage and I felt enveloped by a presence. That's the best way I can describe it. And it felt very, um, felt very ancient. I sensed a lot of wisdom about it, but there was a tremendous amount of sadness that kind of washed over me. And like in my mind's eye, I could see humanity throughout history in kind of these flashes and how humanity had gone away from this kind of stewardship and custodianship to ownership and what are the the effects and impacts of that sort of mentality and how very few pockets of indigenous peoples found how to be in in a balance and in harmony with their local ecosystem because their lives depended on it. And it's like humans are forgetting they're forgetting this intergenerational contract of stewardship, and they're forgetting what it means to be in balance with life to humanity's detriment. Humanity will not survive on this path. Will you, will you, I mean, talking about me, will you do everything you can to help humanity remember this knowledge before it disappears? And it was like, that shook me to my core. That moment is exactly when I became a space environmentalist. 
you're on a mission and this it's a really it's a really really important message this i wonder i mean the thing is because we're all you know we we, we can see the oceans and we can see our immediate landscape here on earth what we need to do is send some politicians up into space so they can get a sense of it i often wonder about that Oh, I think we've got one head that's been to space. The new administrator of NASA. I think he's been there, right? Okay, good. Yeah, former politician, astronaut. You know when they talk about the the, the overview effect and they get that sense of wonder and that sense of awe looking back at the Earth in its context. And I wonder if that's the way to do it. We should we should send up some of our world leaders. Well, I'll put it this way, Dallas. There's, there's a project that we're working on called Eyes on the Sky. Yeah. People can just find that at eyesonthesky.org. And we're trying to develop a mixed reality experience that we can have at several places around the globe to basically try to bring space to people, but do it in a way that says, look at how we've behaved on the land, what we've done to the air, to the sea. Now this is what we're doing to space. I think that's a really good idea. I mean, the fact is that, you know, the digital revolution, and here we are talking about the new space revolution, but the digital revolution generally has given people a visual aspect you know, we can now follow astronauts on the International Space Station. We can look at our Earth. We can travel to Mars. So hopefully that that sort of, you know, that holistic idea, that holistic approach will will catch on and people will start to see low Earth orbit as part of that. Yeah, I'll tell you this, right? Back to the strategy of hope. I don't like that strategy. So I'm, I'm trying to be proactive. And I think part of the problem is that space people in general tend to be very elitist you know, it's like, oh, you know, you, you've got to have PhDs to understand and you're not smart enough. I don't have a PhD, but that's OK. And so the thing is, it's like the sky is where we come from, man. That's what's I common totally to agree. all of humanity. And I want to enroll humanity in that vision and say, look, this stuff is yours. Don't let just billionaires dictate what the hell happens and how we explore Mars and all this stuff. You have a say, you have a voice and you need to and you need to know that this is happening, you know. So that's what I'm trying to do. I think that's amazing. One thing, you won't, no, no one here, we're all too young, but the International Geophysical Year in 1957, was it 57 or 58? Do you know about the IGY? Anyone? The International Geophysical Year was an international science project that happened in 1957. And it was when scientists decided, right, here's all these things we don't know. We don't understand how the Earth works. We don't really understand how the atmosphere works and we don't understand how the sun works so it was this international collaboration where they got earth scientists climate scientists and space scientists together to try and figure all this stuff out and how it all worked together and it ended actually it ended with the launch of sputnik in 1957 the end of the igy was the beginning of the space race but i think we need some i mean there have been other projects similar to that but i think the new space revolution is happening so fast, we do need to just kind of put the brakes on a little bit and just kind of work out the rules of engagement and see how it all fits together from an environmental point of view before Amen. Yeah. we get too carried away, is what I think. I agree. I found a space junk story. Can I read you this space junk story? This is, this is why we need to look after it. A bit of Sputnik 4 okay, entered the atmosphere and it hit a town in Wisconsin, a town called Manitowoc. If, if you go to, to 610 North 8th Street, there is a bit of metal embedded in the road. I'm holding it wow. up to the camera. See, wow. bit of metal. Wow. That came from Sputnik 4 and it's in the middle of the road. It got stuck in the middle of the road. And every year they celebrate it in a, an annual sci-fi event called Sputnik Fest. So here's the thing, right? Before we kind of sign off here, 
with the re-entries, I want to tell you the re-entries are a problem. Because we have more and more stuff up there, there's more stuff that is re-entering and surviving re-entry. And unfortunately, because most of the planet is covered in water and the biggest body of water is the Pacific, we're actually polluting the Pacific Ocean with space junk. So that's not good either. The pole of inaccessibility, it's called Point Nemo, and it's the, it's, you know, it's the oceanic pole of inaccessibility, the furthest bit from land. And you're absolutely right. We're bringing all this stuff down. I found this newspaper article. This is a bit from 1991, and they tried to bring down Salyut 7, which was a Soviet space station. They tried to bring it down exactly there, but they kind of missed. And it ended up hitting a bit of Argentina. The newspaper says, a bit of the abandoned Soviet space station, Salyut 7, crashed into a house in the town in the Capitan Bermudez, about 300 kilometers northwest of Buenos Aires, causing no injuries, a police spokesman said the National Atomic Energy Commission began examining a glowing washing machine-sized object late on Thursday, which crashed into the yard outside the house, said its occupant, Dalia del Palazzo. The woman had been ironing her clothes at 2 p.m., Canberra time, Australia, when she heard a frightening noise. You can't have a bit of Salute 7 landing on your house when you're doing the ironing. I think, you know, we've got to sort this out. We've got to sort this out. Agreed. You know, there's there's a ton about your background, too, that, that I think is just absolutely amazing. And, you know, hopefully as we get a chance with these new podcast episodes coming online, we would love to have you back to talk about your time at JPL and all of the work you've done with the Mars Reconnaissance Mission and, and all of these things that I think are just absolutely amazing. But today's topic of, you know, space domain awareness and making sure that we are good stewards of the space above us, I think is unbelievably important. And so... This has been really great today. I am so looking forward to the next time that we get a chance to talk. And if you ever want to be back on the show, give us a call. We'll be happy to have you. And we'll take some more stories from uh, your nuclear time. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know more about you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you Likewise, come back and brother. talk more because I think your your whole philosophy, your whole idea is is absolutely bang on. And I, you know, as we hurtle into the wild west of the new space revolution and we bung more and more stuff up there, we need to. We need sensible minds like yours. I appreciate that. And I'd love to do another one of these. I know that this is the first one. So, and whenever you feel that you want to bring me back into the lineup of the schedule of these things, please let me know. Cause I'd, I'd love to have another conversation about this stuff. Cause I want to talk to you about Astrograph and all the stuff that you've been doing. Astrograph's amazing, by the way. It's really it's terrific. Astrograph for listeners. If you want to, if you want to, find out what's flying around the earth astrograph google it you can see all all the thousands and thousands of objects that are up there and and where they are and you can you can track them thanks for joining us for another episode of space in 60 stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes and we would love your input and feedback So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks.